This meeting is being recorded. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's MitoAction Monthly Expert Series. My name is Kyra Mann, CEO of MitoAction. Thank you for taking the time to be here with us today as we discuss the ins and outs of CHOP Mitochondrial Medicine Program. Today's presentation will be recorded and available on the MitoAction website in the coming days, as well as on our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. If you're joining us via phone, I would encourage you to follow along with the presentation slides that can be found on our website at www.mitoaction.org resources slash chop. If you're joining us via computer, you should see the presentation on your screen. We encourage you to ask questions throughout the presentation using the Q&A feature on the bottom menu bar. If you're calling in via phone, feel free to submit your questions to us by email at info at mitoaction.org. We will do our best to get through as many questions as possible. We are thrilled to share with you today the ins and outs of CHOP's mitochondrial medicine program. We have Dr. Amy Goldstein and Jamie Peterson. Welcome Stephanie Harry from the MitoAction team to introduce our two amazing speakers. Good afternoon. Dr. Amy Goldstein is a child neurologist by training who joined CHOP in, in 2017. She is currently the clinical director of the Mitochondrial Medicine Frontier Program and serves as the physician lead on several clinical trials. She earned her MD at the University of Pittsburgh and is board certified in pediatrics by the American Board of Pediatrics and in psychiatry by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. She has co-authored dozens of papers and posters related to the mitochondrial research. She is beloved by her patients, and something that most people don't know about her is that she's also a poet. Jamie Peterson has been a licensed certified genetic counselor with the Mitochondrial Medicine Frontier Program since 2018. In addition to the clinical care he provides with the Frontier team, he is also a biocurator for the ClinGen Mitochondrial Disease Gene Curation Expert Panel. He earned his BS with cum laude honors in biological chemistry from Bates College and his MS in genetic counseling from Arcadia University. Please join us in welcoming Dr. Amy Goldstein and Jamie Peterson. Thank you so much. Um, and I want to thank both of you for inviting us to give this presentation today. Uh, Jamie and I are excited to talk to this group because we know that a lot of people would like to come to CHOP to see us. And so we're here to answer your questions about the process, what we can offer, and um, answer any other questions that you might have today. And so, Jamie, if you want to go to the next slide, please. Oops. Oh, sorry. That's okay. And then, all right, there we go. Well, well, okay, great. Thank you. Um, so as you heard, I'm the clinical director of the mitochondrial medicine program, and Jamie's one of our genetic counselors. We're going to talk about all the staff that we have because we've been growing since I arrived five years ago, um, and we continue to grow. But first, we just want to make sure we all get back to the same page about what is mitochondrial disease. And uh, just as a reminder, we take care of people who have primary genetic mitochondrial disease. And so you might hear a lot about secondary mitochondrial dysfunction or other disorders that involve the mitochondria, but our specialty area is in primary genetic mitochondrial disease. 
So what is mitochondria? We all learned that mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell. They make our ATP, but we really like thinking about this as a battery um, that has energy and it, the battery can drain and the battery needs to get recharged. And we've spent a lot of time talking to our patients about how to recharge their batteries. Um, again, primary mitochondrial disease is an energy deficiency due to lack of ATP, um, and that is due to the mitochondria. Um, the one on the left is a, is a cell, and um, you can see the nucleus in the center, but they're mitochondria, which are one of many organelles that help the cells run. And again, the primary job of mitochondria is to make energy or ATP. And we can go to the next slide. Thank you. What does mitochondrial disease look like? We like to think about mitochondrial disease in many different ways. So we know that a variety of organs and systems can be involved. And we think that the organs that get the most involved are the organs that need that energy. So it's usually the brain, the eyes, the ears, the heart, and the skeletal muscle. And we start thinking about mitochondrial disease if three or more organ systems are involved. And what we've come to recognize over time is that there are some very specific patterns of involvement for different syndromes, different mitochondrial syndrome, syndromes. So for example, um, in one disorder called MILAS, we can recognize people have stroke-like episodes and migraines, but they also might have diabetes and deafness. And so that's how more than one organ system can get involved. So that disorder involves the brain, the ears, and the um, endocrine system. And the onset of symptoms can range from infancy to adulthood. And a lot of people ask us, I'm an adult, where can I be seen? At our MITO Center, we see children and adults. Our oldest patient is in their 80s. Um, and it is true that you can start developing symptoms um, well past age 60. Um, so there's just a very wide range of symptoms that can occur. Um, if you look closer at this diagram, you can see it goes all around the body. It explains how the brain can get involved, symptoms of the heart that can include arrhythmia or cardiomyopathy. The liver can be involved with elevated liver enzymes. Um, and that's more of a childhood presentation. I would say the kidneys can be involved, the endocrine system, um, the eyes can be involved, the back of the eye causing like a pigmentary retinopathy or an optic neuropathy, as well as eye muscle disease that causes the ptosis and the external ophthalmoplegia, what we call CPEO. Um, the neurologic system can be involved. A lot of people ask me, you're a child neurologist, why did you specialize in mitochondrial disease? The brain, despite having very little overall body weight in the body, demands about 20 to 30% of the body's energy. So many people, especially children, will present with their mitochondrial disease with some type of brain symptoms. And again, that can be regression, it can be an abnormal MRI, it can be seizures or stroke-like episodes or migraines. In some of our adults, it can be um, cognitive decline and even dementia. Um, the gut can be involved. I'm actually speaking at a GI conference this weekend about all the gut manifestations, especially the dysmotility. And so the GI um, physicians are very excited to hear more about mitochondrial disease. Um, and then there are some other symptoms that involve the muscle and the peripheral nerves. Um, in fact, um, one, one thing that we don't have on the slide, our colleague, Dr. Zulkipli Cunningham did a survey several years ago um, some of you may have been part of this, where she surveyed our adult patients and asked them, what are your top symptoms and what symptoms would 
you want to be in a clinical trial for. So in other words, if we had a drug that could fix symptoms, what would those top symptoms be? And the results came down to the three biggest muscle symptoms, which are weakness, exercise intolerance, and fatigue. And then the next symptom was imbalance. And imbalance can result from weakness in your legs, as well as your balance center in your brain. And then the last symptom of the top five was GI manifestations. And Jamie, you could go to the next slide, please. Okay, so then we want to answer the question of how do you be referred for an evaluation? And I will tell you, it's really helpful if we have a letter from one of your doctors stating why they want you evaluated for mitochondrial disease, what are the symptoms or any other testing that's already been done that would prompt this evaluation. Some patients that try to come to our clinic have never seen a genetics doctor before, and I would say that's not required, but it can be very helpful to see if there's testing that's already been done. Um, you can ask if a referral for a mitochondrial disease workup is appropriate from your PCP or other specialists, and again, have a doctor refer to the team. We have many ways for people to get in touch with us. There's an email, mmfp at shop.edu. So it's M is in Mary, M is in Mary, F is in Frank, P is in Paul. That stands for the Mitochondrial Medicine Frontier Program. The reason that our center is called that is because CHOP identifies areas that are blooming and booming in medicine, and they give specific money and staff and hiring abilities to really help focus on one area of disease and pediatrics. And several years ago, Dr. Falk, who is our executive director, applied to be recognized as a frontier program, and that allowed her to hire more genetic counselors, more physicians, more nurses. And so our program really has built um, tremendously in the past five years, and it's allowed us to um, accept many more patients um, to be seen in our program. Um, there, there's also a fax number. Um, there, 215-590-0582, and you want to use the subject header new patient referral for any records that are going to be faxed. And Jamie, you can go to the next slide, and I'll let you take over from here for a few slides. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Goldstein. <clears throat> and so what is the referral review process like? So when we receive a referral, we do an extensive review of the records um, to see if uh, that patient is an appropriate fit for a mitochondrial disease workup. Sometimes there is uh, testing that can be done that's much faster than the uh, testing that is done in a mitochondrial disease workup. So it may be more appropriate to see a geneticist uh, more locally who can order that testing faster than the uh, lengthening testing that is ordered when, when people go through a mitochondrial disease workup. One of the things that's most crucial for our um, uh, referral reviews is that we have complete records. When we receive incomplete records, uh, these do take more time to review because missing records uh, really help us piece together the patient's story. And it's a really important component of reviewing patient histories and patient stories when we're thinking about um, is uh, the next step for this person a mitochondrial disease workup. This is by no means a comprehensive checklist uh, of um, uh, the records we review uh, when we're looking at referrals, but this is just a, an illustrative example of uh, some things that we look at. And I've bolded what I think are the two uh, records that we prioritize the most 
And that's when we receive the referral, it's really helpful to know uh, the reason why uh, your provider suspects that you might have a mitochondrial disease. There are many different types of mitochondrial diseases. And when we think about uh, testing for mitochondrial disease, uh, it is there are many different tests that we, we order. And to know which test applies best for the patient, it's very helpful to know, well, what are the symptoms of concern that raised this suspicion for mitochondrial disease? Stemming off of that, the genetic testing records are absolutely crucial. Uh, Dr. Goldstein uh, was speaking about this a little bit earlier, um, but when we see patients in our clinic, we, we work them up for primary mitochondrial disease and a primary mitochondrial disease is caused by a genetic change in um, someone's DNA that affects the way the mitochondria make energy. And what can be tricky about mitochondrial disease is the symptoms as Dr. Goldstein was highlighting earlier, uh, they can affect many different organ systems and some of them can be nonspecific. And it's uh, very common for us to actually see patients in our clinic who don't have a mitochondrial disease, but have another genetic disorder. And in those instances, there are other providers who are more tailored for um, providing uh, the appropriate care for those patients with other genetic conditions that maybe look like a mitochondrial disease, but are a different genetic condition. And so that's one of the reasons why the genetic testing records are so crucial is we want to make sure that all patient referrals um, that come through our clinic are being triaged appropriately and uh, the patients are getting the appropriate care by the uh, specialist who is best suited for their needs. Some of the other uh, records that we review, are, of course, our notes from specialists are absolutely critical in piecing together that patient story. Laboratory studies, of course, brain MRI images, if they've been performed. And not everybody's had a muscle or skin biopsy, but if they've been performed, that information can also be very helpful when we're reviewing uh, records. If you've been referred for an appointment at um, the MITO team at CHOP, uh, please feel free to check in on the status of your referral. Uh, the best way to contact our patient, or be best way to contact our clinic as a new patient is through our email, which is mmfp at chop.edu. Um, that's mmfp at chop.edu. If you're a current patient, um, maybe at CHOP, uh, a, the best way to get in touch with us is through the MyCHOP messaging system, or if that uh, system has already been created for you, that's one of the best ways to check in with us. Both our email and our MyChop system are checked uh, multiple times uh, a day. We do have a phone number, um, and we're more than happy to take your message if we're not able to get on the phone with you uh, at the current time at which you call, um, and are listed our phone number there if you would prefer to call us by phone to check in about the status of your referral, and that number is 267-426-4961. Now, some people may say, well, I don't live close to Philadelphia. I don't live in the tri-state area. Can I still be seen at CHOP? And the short answer is absolutely. Um, this uh, uh, image here is, is courtesy of one of our, our um, very talented data analysts, um, uh, George Sanko. Uh, we see patients all over the U.S., um, from many different states. Uh, and um, we also see uh, international patients as well. Um, and uh, many of our patients uh, outside of the tri-state area come from places like Florida, 
We have some from California, some from New England, some from the Midwest. And so we are more than happy to see um, any patient from any location if you're able to make it to CHOP. We do offer telemedicine services. Um, however, the telemedicine availability will depend uh, on a state-by-state -state basis. It depends on a couple of different factors. Um, the first and foremost is uh, physician licensure in the state where um, the patient lives where telemedicine services are being performed. And we do have licenses in, in many states, but not, not all states. And the other component, of course, is um, insurance approval. Some insurances approve telemedicine as a patient visit option, some do not. And so uh, we may be able to offer telemedicine services if you don't live uh, near the Philadelphia area, but unfortunately we aren't able to offer that to everyone depending on a couple of those factors there. And if we're not able to offer telemedicine um, and uh, getting to CHOP is burdensome, there, there are resources that are available and we do wanna help people be able to get to CHOP. And we recently have uh, a new social worker who joined our team who helps us a lot for um, patients who have difficulty traveling to the Philadelphia area. And so we just wanna make sure that people are aware that there are resources to help support um, families in terms of travel uh, getting to CHOP for their appointment. And then one of the things I wanted to review on today's call is, you know, what do we do in our patient visits? You know, what uh, services does the CHOP MITRE team provide? And this is by no means an exhaustive list, but I think these four points here uh, do a nice summary of the services we, we provide at, at CHOP. And first and foremost, uh, we care for patients with primary mitochondrial disease, and we act as uh, uh, care coordinators and uh, medical management uh, specialists for patients with that diagnosis. And um, genetic testing, of course, is needed to confirm a diagnosis of primary mitochondrial disease. One of the other things that we do is we also offer diagnostic testing, and it's very comprehensive diagnostic testing for patients who are undiagnosed and they have a clinical suspicion for mitochondrial disease. Uh, one of the things I was alluding to earlier is sometimes the symptoms of mitochondrial disease can be nonspecific. And so in terms of the diagnostic testing, um, that's one of the things that we review in the records is making sure that um, uh, the patient's referral is an appropriate referral for mitochondrial disease because there are other um, genetic conditions that can mimic mitochondrial disease, such as neuromuscular disorders, that in terms of their diagnostic testing, have a different testing modality that's needed. And we aren't experts in other types of genetic conditions. And so we want to make sure that we're able to provide the best services possible and the most appropriate services possible for the patients who are referred to us. And if we're not the best um, uh, suited team for the patient's needs, we want to make sure that we point you in the right direction of a team that will serve those needs. Some of the other things that we focus on are um, uh, responsibilities at the, the CHOP MITO team. Of course, we're a clinical trial site um, for a variety of different clinical trials, many of which are coming down the pipe for patients with a confirmed primary mitochondrial disease. And uh, the research studies uh, we offer many research studies as well that are aimed at not only improving the diagnostic rate of mitochondrial disease, but also that look at exploring potential future therapeutic and treatment options for primary mitochondrial disease.
If you have any other um, uh, questions that you have, we're, we're more than happy to address those in a few minutes. And if there's anything that we don't get a chance to address in today's session, there is more information online. We have uh, two different Facebook pages that I've listed there, as well as our Mitochondrial Medicine Frontier Program CHOP homepage that I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to take a look at. And I just want to acknowledge, you know, our, our clinical team here. We have a group of wonderful doctors here. We're all attending physicians um, who have uh, uh, been working with our team for many years now. And of course, Cass Pantano, our, our wonderful nurse practitioner. We have many clinical uh, fellows and observers who are training in mitochondrial medicine to be the next generation of mitochondrial medicine care providers who I've listed there, who have come through. Um, throughout the years. And Dr. El Sharkawi is, is now up in Boston. He just finished his fellowship with us a, a few weeks ago and, and we wish him well. And Dr. Sharma, as you can see there, joined faculty um, just this past August, uh, or last August, I should say. Um, and so we have, really have a, a, a wonderful team of, of many talented clinicians. And in terms of our clinical staff, you know, we have many genetic counselors, wonderful nurses and clinical coordinators and physical therapists who help provide this multidisciplinary care and care coordination for our, our patients. And I do want to also highlight our two new team members who recently joined our team, one of whom, who I mentioned earlier, our, our social worker who we'd like to welcome to our group, Addie uh, Fishstein, and our new practice manager, uh, Asia Washington, who both joined us this past summer. And that's everything we had for our uh, presentation on the ins and outs of the CHOP Mitochondrial Medicine Frontier Program. Uh, we'd be more than happy to take questions uh, at this point in time, uh, if anyone has any. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you both so much for that. We appreciate it. So a couple of questions have come in. The first question is, can you clarify for a lot of our patients seeking um, care from a mitochondrial specialist, they're required to have a genetically confirmed diagnosis before even being allowed to schedule an appointment. Can you clarify whether that's a requirement at CHOP or, or, or are, are patients allowed to come because they have symptoms, you think they have mito, and you're willing to go down that path of discovery with them? Yes, absolutely. So that's a great question. And thank you for asking it because um, we do want to clarify that. Um, so one thing that I want to preface this by saying is that we are part of a bigger network of clinics. So there is something called the mitochondrial care network, and that's about 26 different centers in the U S. Um, and, um, CHOP is, um, again, one of those centers and to be a center, you needed to be able to show not only could you take care of children, but also adults, either at your own hospital or through a sister hospital. Um, so here at CHOP, we also have um, the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania right next door. And so when we do see adults, um, and if they need other referrals, we can refer over to our adult hospital next door, or if somebody's coming from a distance, to have them follow up at their home hospital with those adult providers. Um, the reason I wanted to distinguish this, there can be some practice differences between children and adults. At CHOP, we are happy to see anybody who has a suspicion for a primary genetic mitochondrial disease. It does not need to be confirmed by the, when you get here. And sometimes this is what we're doing is evaluating someone and doing that genetic testing for the first time 
um, to see if there is in fact a, a mitochondrial disease. When we talk about other genetic tests that have been done already, I'll give a few examples. So there are times when children have developmental delay or intellectual disability or autism. And the very first thing that we should be thinking about is not necessarily mitochondrial disease, but is there another genetic entity? And some of the testing that is usually done by genetic doctors um, or neurologists for that, you know, that first round of testing is something called a chromosomal microarray or some children are even checked for fragile X. And those are not mitochondrial disorders, um, but it would be important for those first line tests to be done because we like to know those other issues have already been ruled out so that we know that patient's more appropriate for us. In terms of adults, there are some adults, um, and I'm gonna say, say, um, cite some specific examples that have come through recently. There have been a few adults that are coming for mitochondrial disease evaluation that have had a muscle biopsy and the muscle biopsy is abnormal. It might have abnormal staining. It might have specific abnormalities that bring up other entities such as you know, a congenital myopathy or other type of muscular dystrophies. And we would want that adult to first be seen at a neuromuscular center for those other conditions to be ruled out before we're looking at a mitochondrial disease because those are not our areas of specialty. And there are many disorders that can overlap. And I think that's, you know, one of the most important things is that even if three organs are involved and you look that up on one of the mito websites and it looks like it could be mitochondrial disease, there are still many other disorders that can overlap with those symptoms and need to be assessed um, as well. So to answer the question again with, with full clarity, you do not need to have a diagnosis when you come, but we are interested in seeing what other workup has already been done and is there something more appropriate to do as your next step before we're seeing you to do the mitochondrial disease workup? Great, thank you for that, Dr. Goldstein. Um, the ne next question is related to telehealth. Are, in order to have a telehealth visit, are you required to first be seen in person before you can have a telehealth visit or can your first visit, if all the requirements are met, be via telehealth? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I will say, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of horrible things that have come out of COVID, but one of the things that has come out of COVID that's been beneficial for the medical world is this sudden availability of telemedicine. We always knew it was possible, at, but COVID made us get here, right? So telemedicine is now here. There was a national emergency in place because no one was going anywhere. And in fact, for a few months, we were also grounded and at home um, and seeing all of our patients via telemedicine, no matter where they were from. Now that things have opened back up, it really depends, as Jamie was saying, um, on what state that person is from. In order to be seen by telemedicine, there are very few states that still have the national emergency going, but most states make it so that if I'm going to see somebody by telemedicine, I need to hold a license, a, a medical license, in that state where my patient resides. And so the hospital allowed me to obtain a few other medical licenses. I now have a license in Virginia, so I can see Virginia patients by telemedicine. I also have a license in Florida, so I can see Florida patients by telemedicine. There are some patients I have never seen in person. We've done it all over telemedicine, and we get on a call just like this, and if I were examining Kyra, I would say, look up, look down, look to the left, let me see you walk. You know, we do as best of an exam as we can. Um, that's safe and that, that you can do from the comfort of your home. But a lot of what we do is talk about the medical history, your symptoms, what testing has been done. 
And then if genetic testing is necessary, Jamie can then coordinate that from afar. Um, and Jamie, you, you maybe wanted to say a couple words about how you were able to coordinate genetic testing from a distance. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Goldstein. Um, one of the nice things of genetic testing uh, when it came to the pandemic is genetic testing, at least in recent years, has almost always been able to be coordinated remotely. Uh, one of the most important parts of genetic testing beyond obtaining the sample is the consent process. And particularly with respect to mitochondrial disease, there's lots of comprehensive genetic testing that's done. And there's an important consent process that goes into that that plays a significant uh, role in our patient visits, especially when we're working up undiagnosed patients. And that can be performed uh, remotely very easily over the phone, although video visits are preferred for consent um, uh, for genetic counseling. They can be done by phone as well. But then uh, cheek swab and saliva kits are very viable sources of DNA that we use routinely for even comprehensive genetic testing that can be mailed anywhere in the uh, US uh, for sure. You know, it's a little bit trickier when you're talking about international lines and in, in collecting samples there. Uh, there are ways to do it, but there can be a, a couple of extra hurdles to overcome, but certainly anywhere in the US, uh, cheek swab kits, saliva kits can very easily be mailed for remote specimen collection. Perfect. Thank you. And one last question, then I'm going to turn it over to Stephanie. Um, can you give us a sense for if you are um, a patient at CHOP, how often is it necessary on average to be seen? Is it a one time a year visit? And then you provide a, a plan that they can then implement with their local um, medical team? Or how often do patients typically see you? Mm -hmm. Great question. And I would say it really depends. If I have somebody who is not doing well, meaning that they've noticed that there's been some disease progression or new symptoms. I wanna be able to see that patient back on a very regular basis. And for me, that means about every three months while they're going through that particular time. Um, most of my patients I like to see twice a year, unless there's another mito specialist or local genetics that's also helping coordinate care locally. So again, most of my patients don't live in Philadelphia. And so they might come from another, another you know, an hour, hour away or more and they have a home hospital um, that is in their local area. If there's somebody else that has kind of feet on the ground and doing care coordination for my patient, I can see them once a year, and then they can see their other provider once a year, but we try to alternate those so that they're being seen by somebody every six months, either me and then the other provider. Um, and then again, if there's something else that's going on, let's say somebody is at home, but then they need to be hospitalized locally, we are very involved in that process. We encourage the, the admitting team to call us to see if there's any other advice that's necessary. Um, our nurse practitioner is frequently on the phone um, several times a day with outside providers at other hospitals helping to manage our patients if they do need to be hospitalized. Um, so I'd say it depends. I see patients anywhere from every couple of months to once a year. Um, some of our patients are even more stable than that, and they decide to come back every couple of years just to see is there anything new, any new trials, things like that. So it really is individualized. It depends on how somebody's doing and you know wh whether there are active issues that are going on that we need to attend to. Great. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, well, I was going to say, if somebody's in a clinical trial, then we're seeing them more often because they're coming in for those visits. Absolutely. Um, Amy, uh, Stephanie, I'll turn over to you. 
Okay. Um, a patient asked, is genetic testing included in mitochondrial disease workups? And um, I guess adding to that too, would if it's three months before my appointment, um, do you guys ever work with the PCP to do certain kinds of testing? So maybe during that first appointment, there's testing that's already been done because sometimes PCPs don't know what to order or what they should be ordering, or do you prefer just to wait until the patient kind of comes in? That's a really great question. And um, our, our typical procedure is that we wait till the patient comes in because that consent process is so crucial. It requires very um, specified training to do the uh, consent for the, the test that we commonly order is called whole exome sequencing. Uh, and, and actually, in fact, many insurances won't approve whole exome sequencing unless consent has been provided by uh, either a board certified geneticist or a genetic counselor. Uh, now, some families may say, well, we can get into local genetics sooner than at the CHOP Mito team. And we certainly work with uh, local genetics teams who um, have uh, board certified geneticists, genetic counselors who can do the consent for exome sequencing, coordinate the testing, and then we see the patient after those test results are done. Um, sometimes patients aren't able to get into local genetics before their visit, um, but there is a criteria that that um, consent process be performed either by a board certified geneticist or um, a genetic counselor, which is sort of the rate limiting step, if you will, when it comes to um, genetic testing. And one of the main reasons for that is, is some people, genetic testing may not be something they want to pursue. And this is a really important part of the consent process information is very powerful and um, power can be both beneficial, but power can also have a, a detrimental side to it as well. And part of the consent process is really exploring that with the family and making sure that this is in fact a test that they understand the implications of, potential implications of, and um, uh, truly do want the results from that particular test. And so um, that's, I'd say that the biggest rate limiting step in terms of accessing this uh, genetic testing. And our hope is that with the world of remote um, visits, uh, you know, whether it's us, whether it's local genetics, that we in increase the uh, uh, accessibility of this testing so that we don't have to wait such long times. Um, uh, but it unfortunately is still a bit of a rate limiting step that we have there. And do you, if, if a patient comes and the they're having issues with their insurance covering the testing, how do you guys navigate that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And this is uh, what I actually spend a decent amount of time in, in my role working on. Um, we have many labs that we work with that can um, offer lower rates of genetic testing um, because they're uh, privately funded uh, institutions. Um, and uh, we work with them. Uh, sometimes they're able to offer financial assistance programs. So we have a couple of different avenues that we explore when, you know, our first crack at insurance approval, if it doesn't go through, um, we explore a couple of different avenues that we try our, our very hardest to <clears throat> obtain a $0 out-of-pocket cost for families. Unfortunately, that that isn't always the case, and, and sometimes we're not able to uh, obtain the, the testing. And then one of the things for $0 out-of-pocket and then one of the things that we review with the families is sort of what are the most important tests? What are the biggest, you know, quote unquote, biggest bang for your buck tests? What are the most important tests for um, uh, your child or your, your symptoms and trying to help the families navigate that? 
Again, I, I wish the circumstances were different. We, we take every step possible we can to try and make that as, um, as, as easy and as financially feasible as possible. Uh, I, I wish it was the case that we would be able to say everybody can have testing free of charge. Unfortunately, we're not quite there yet. And that's one of the things that takes so long with the insurance approval process is, is working through um, the administrative portion of it. It's probably about a 50-50 split in terms of time for the administrative portion and then the actual test itself. And, you know, I think most genetics providers will quote about six months for a turnaround of exome sequencing. And the split there is about three months of admin work and about three months of, of uh, actual testing work. Oh, wow. I really appreciate how you broke that down too, as to what the admin and testing is. Cause sometimes it's hard to know, like, what is going on? Why is it taking so long? Cause you know, you're anxious as a patient wanting to get the information back. Um, so another patient asked, uh, do you see patients that have confirmed diagnoses for almost every body system you mentioned, but have already been through programs such as the NIH undiagnosed disease program? Um, maybe they have, uh, it sounds like this patient is positive for glycolytics, uh, skin biopsy, but there was no specific diagnosis that was confirmed yet. Is that like a kind of patient that it would be open to them trying to apply to your program if they've already been through the undiagnosed disease program? Yeah, we see patients, um, both children and adults that have been through the undiagnosed disease program. I will say that one of the benefits of going to that type of program is that they usually have access to more testing than anyone else. And that's the benefit of going to that type of program. Um, however, and Jamie can correct me if I'm wrong here, um, when you do something like an undiagnosed disease program, a lot of times the testing is done on a research basis. And so sometimes it helps to see us and confirm was clinical testing done? Do we need to do any other clinical testing, um, for example? Um, and sometimes we'll work together with a UDN program. You know, we have a UDN program here at CHOP. And actually, Jamie and I have a call today at 3 o'clock to talk about, you know, our mutual patients that are seen by us as well as our UDN program. Um, because sometimes, um, depending on where you're seen at the UDN, there may or may not be a mitochondrial expert that's part of that UDN panel, and they may need assistance in knowing, well, what are the next steps? Was there a muscle biopsy done? Where did that muscle biopsy go? Was all the testing completed? Have we ruled out mitochondrial disease? Um, so it, it's certainly not exclusive. You know, it's not, you, you're either seen at our program or an undiagnosed disease program. You could be seen at both. That's really helpful. Um, the next question, I'm going to kind of combine two questions because they kind of relate to each other. It's in regards to CPEO. Um, there's a question that came in that if you have CPEO and you try to get seen at CHOP, like how, how does that work? And do you connect them with um, an eye specialist like through the clinic after they've been seen by you or do they have to find somebody local? And then the second part of that, somebody else asked, um, if at this point in their CPEO, if they're most interested in their eyelid surgery, is it appropriate for them to try to connect with CHOP or should they be trying to seek um, someone else like more in, in a different place um, than CHOP? Mm -hmm. Great question. So um, as some of you might know, CPEO, which stands for Chronic Progressive External Ophthalmoplegia, 
um, it deals with having ptosis, so a droopy eyelid, and also the eyes tend to not move around as well. You can have you know, very much a limitation of eye movement. The ptosis can be very tricky. And by the way, the, the P in ptosis is silent. So it has some people that call it ptosis, but it's ptosis, like pneumonia, how the P is silent in pneumonia. Um, but we had a patient who came in not too long ago, and this boy had to sit there like this, holding his eyelid open. Um, so we know that the ptosis can be tricky. Um, there are different genetic causes of CPEO. Some of our patients might have their CPEO because they have a single large scale mitochondrial DNA deletion. Um, some of the names of those diseases are Kern-Serre syndrome. Um, sometimes it's not full-blown Kern-Serre syndrome, it's just CPEO and myopathy. Some of our patients with CPEO have the, this, the MELAS mutation, so the, the M3243A to G, which can cause MELAS, but in other people it might cause CPEO and skeletal myopathy. Um, another uh, gene that can cause CPEO is POLG or polymerase gamma mutations or twinkle mutations. And there's a reason I'm stating why there's so many different genetic causes of CPEO, because if I have a child that has CPEO and they want to have surgery, depending on the cause of the CPEO, there may be extra monitoring required. So for example, we had two kids recently who came in for ptosis surgery with our oculoplastics team. And when you have Kern-Serre syndrome, you can have different endocrine, endocrine issues come up, especially around the time of surgery. And this is where it's really important to know that the cause of your CPO is from a mitochondrial disease and not just go to anyone and go get an eyelid repair and have them not know that you might need to be monitored. So for example, I made sure that my recent patient had an EKG before going to the OR because people with Kern-Serre syndrome can have arrhythmias and some of them might need a pacemaker. Some of our patients might develop diabetes during the stress of surgery or have very high sugar levels because of surgery. Some of our Kern-Serre patients have hypoparathyroidism and that causes their calcium to be very low. And when you have surgery, it can cause extra stress and extra low calcium. So for our patients that come in to get the repair, we have blood monitoring before and after surgery to make sure they're stable to go home. I think it also helps to be with a doctor that's done ptosis repair on mitochondrial patients because there are some people that are born with a congenital ptosis, so the eyelid is just low, and all they have to do is a repair, and then usually it's good for lifetime. Our patients with mitochondrial disease have a progressive syndrome, and they can get one ptosis repair, and over time they might need a second one. Um, and then some of the other ins and outs of ptosis surgery are making sure you're with an eye doctor that realizes if you're not able to close that eye all the way, so that you're doing very good eye care, that you're not getting corneal ulcers, that you're not the eyes and drying out. So there's a lot of aftercare that goes into it. So our preference is that patients have this repair at a center um, or with a doctor that either has input from a mitochondrial team or is familiar with mitochondrial disease for all of those reasons. Um, here at CHOP and Penn, we have a team of oculoplastic surgeons that do surgery on children or adults, either here at CHOP or at their at, at HOP, at our adult hospital. And because it's a specialty surgery, even if there's an, an eye doctor at someone's home hospital that could do it, 
we're usually able to get that person to apply to their insurance for out-of-network benefits, and they're usually able to get it um, because this is there's so many different caveats to having the surgery and the monitoring that's required before and after. So, so as you're talking about applying for um, uh, with insurance and stuff, somebody asked, "Do you guys take Medicaid?" Yes, we do. Mm-hmm. We take Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's really helpful. I really appreciate you breaking all of that down for our CPO patients. Um, Cause I know there's a lot of, of questions around how all that works. Mm-hmm. How do you handle patients after you run a workup and they have unclear set of test results? Or if you think eh, this isn't quite mitochondrial disease, um, what then, what do you do with them? Mm-hmm. Jamie, do you want to take this question first? We have a negative exome. <laughs> yeah, great question. So one of the biggest limitations to any genetic testing is that we don't know what all of our genes do yet. So negative genetic testing does not mean that a person does not have a genetic condition or a genetic uh, uh, mutation that's causing their symptoms. So one of our recommendations um, when we have negative genetic testing depends on what are the patient's symptoms, you know, what's our clinical suspicion for a mitochondrial disease. Um, you know, symptoms like CPEO are more commonly seen in mitochondrial disease, or I should say more specific to mitochondrial disease than say something like general fatigue, which there can be many reasons why people have fatigue. So we look at the patient's symptoms and we say, looking at your symptoms, what's our suspicion for a mitochondrial disease? And then looking at your blood work and your urine work, do any of the metabolic indicators suggest that there's something off with the mitochondria? And if all of those um, are not suggestive of mitochondrial disease and the genetic testing is negative, that's when we usually say our suspicion for mitochondrial disease at this point is low. The best provider for you would be a, a genetics clinic, a general genetics clinic, because they think about the big picture of all types of genetic conditions where we are very hyper-focused on mitochondrial disease specifically. Where that might deviate would be if a patient has had negative genetic testing and there are classic findings of mitochondrial disease, multiple um, metabolic markers that are consistent with a mitochondrial disease, multiple symptoms that are highly specific to mitochondrial disease. In those instances, what we do is we follow patients to monitor their stability, and then uh, order the reanalysis of the testing. Um, Usually the minimum time period is one year, um, simply because we're only discovering, I say only, but we're discovering 200 genes per year, roughly, 100 to 200 genes per year, roughly. But reanalyzing the data sooner than that um, oftentimes uh, does not yield any different results. So the labs typically recommend that you wait at least a year, if not two to three years for the reanalysis. And so when the, the constellation of symptoms and metabolic markers are suggestive of a mitochondrial disease, uh, we continue to follow those patients <clears throat> and uh, reanalyze their data over time. Whereas when those uh, symptoms are um, not suggestive of a mitochondrial disease, we tend to redirect patients towards general genetics so that we can take a step back again and think about the big picture and make sure that we aren't focusing on one area where there may be an underlying condition in another area that uh, you know, our, our team doesn't have as much 
um, uh, expertise in as we do in mitochondrial disease. Uh, Dr. Goldstein, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, so um, there are, as Jamie just said, there are, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for someone to come in and our first line of testing, which is genetic testing, might be negative. And then we have a big decision to make. Are we ready to do muscle biopsy? And there are some hospitals that have really slowed down on muscle biopsy, but if we're suspicious that it is a mitochondrial disease or we feel it's important to rule it in or rule it out, then we will proceed with muscle biopsy. And we either refer patients here to our general surgeon or we refer patients to a general surgeon at HUP who will do the muscle biopsy. There are times where people want to get their muscle biopsy at their home hospital. And then Jamie has a lot of work to do calling pathology and getting the muscle shipped here so that we can then take care of the specialty send outs. Um, and so, you know, there are times where we have to then proceed with invasive testing. And then we see if we get other answers. And even after someone gets a muscle biopsy, there still might be a question. We, it doesn't always solve everything. And there are times where the muscle biopsy might be completely normal in appearance. And we have to decide, are we done? Have we ruled out mitochondrial disease? And, and many times that is the kind of the end of the line, if you will. Um, but as Jamie said, even if you've had one exome, there's an opportunity to go back and look at that again, and then again, and again, um, until we find an answer or, we, or there's been another diagnosis that's been made in the interim because some of our patients end up with non-genetic diagnoses to explain their symptoms, like an autoimmune disease, for example. Um, there's also some newer testing that's come out recently. So some of our patients have had whole exome sequencing. There's a newer test called whole genome sequencing. And sometimes it's appropriate to do whole genome sequencing. Um, but for me, one of the most important things that I counsel the patients about, and this is something we hear all the time, that, you know, no one else knows what to do. They're all waiting for you to figure it out. Well, it could take us years to figure it out. We all know the frustrating reality that is that it takes years sometimes to make this diagnosis. And we don't want that to stop the ongoing care of your patient's symptoms. And so if somebody's having GI issues, we still encourage go back to GI. I promise you there's nothing I'm gonna discover that's gonna be able to change their ongoing management. If they're afraid to use a certain medication, we usually can do enough testing that we say it's safe to use that medication, go ahead. Um, but there, you know, the, the symptom management is very important. And I don't think that there are many specialists that would really understand the difference between, okay, we've discovered this is 3460 versus 3243 and give that information back to the, the GI person. They're not going to do anything different knowing what the precise genetic diagnosis is. So getting ongoing management of your symptoms is really key, especially if you're still undiagnosed with a you know, from a primary genetic standpoint. That's really helpful. Do you yeah, like, if you, oh. I was just gonna say, I think that's music to a lot of patients' ears because the diagnose, diagnostic journey is so long and so complex sometimes to know that they have a team that regardless is gonna focus on symptom management so that they can feel better and still you know, manage their day-to-day -day is really, really important. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and it sounds like you kind of would help them navigate a little bit about like, okay, this is the point that you need to like, be, or this is where you need to be directed for symptom management. And so it's not like they're just kind of out on their own to figure out how to do that. Because sometimes that's hard. 
Um, mm-hmm. but I'm curious, like with the, like, sometimes if you feel like, well, they need to go back to genetics to get a broader picture of, of what's going on genetically. Do you guys provide referrals? Cause sometimes it's hard to get into a, your local genet to see your local geneticist, um, or how, or is it required by their PCP? Like if they come to you and you decide for them to go back to genetics, um, would you provide a referral for that? Yeah, sometimes that's an insurance issue. You know, there are times where based on someone's insurance, if they need a referral, sometimes it is a referral by the PCP. Um, you know, we're very um, specialized here. And I think one of the things that gets frustrating for um, different doctors is if somebody refers a patient to me and then I refer to another specialist, that can get a little frustrating. Um, so I don't, I, don't, I don't like to use the word referral. I use the word, like I'm suggesting a consultation, <laughs> you know, that a consultation with either general genetics or, you know, we'll send our patients again. We do send our patients to specialists to help with other symptom evaluation and management. So even if somebody's not having symptoms, we'll suggest a consultation to ophthalmology for a thorough eye exam, to audiology for a thorough hearing evaluation, um, and then again, no matter, you know, whatever the symptoms are, a lot of our patients need to go to see GI or neurology to work on specific symptoms. Um, cardiology, I would say, again, is another one of our common screening consultations because people need an EKG. You know, people usually aren't aware if they have an arrhythmia or if they have a little thickening on the heart. So these are, these are important um, consultations that are needed when you're undergoing a mitochondrial, either evaluation or surveillance for a primary disease. Absolutely. We have a patient that is planning to see you guys in the fall. And um, they were wondering, um, they said, we will be coming from the Midwest. Is there any recommended accommodation nearby for medically complex kids and families? Who do they get in contact about that? Also for future visits, they, they asked about telemedicine appointments and stuff, but I believe you already um, talked about that. Yeah, we really would like to be able to continue telemedicine. Um, and again, it's really a state-by-state basis. I feel like um, if we have enough patients in one particular area um, that the hospital would permit me to collect more out-of-state licenses. Um, but this is also something that the Mitochondrial Care Network is working on. Um, and Kyra, I don't know if you have more information about, you know, the kind of things that Dr. Preek and Dr. Kara have been working on with getting telemedicine for the, the care network. Um, so that's something that hopefully if we make some more headway in that, that's something that um, MitoAction can disseminate, you know, that information. Um, but in terms of um, checking in, I'm so glad that this person asked this question um, because I, you know, we don't want families to have to do this on their own. As Jamie mentioned, we do have a social worker, Addie Fishstein. You can email us at the main email address, mmfp at chop.edu, or if your my CHOP account is already active, send a message and ask the team to hook you up with the social worker because there are discounts at certain hotels. There's a Ronald McDonald house. Um, there's help with transportation. There's, you know, there's, we want to make the visit here as easy as possible. So definitely touch base with our social worker about that. That's awesome. That's really helpful. That's really helpful. Um, I believe you already talked about this, but I just want to give, I just want to give this space for this. Uh, there was a patient that asked how long genetic testing normally takes place. I believe you said six months, um, but I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to add to that. 
Great question. Um, I'd say standardly it's six months, especially for things like exome sequencing, um, muscle biopsy testing. Um, trying to think about it. skin biopsy testing can take a very long time because the cells have to grow in the lab before you can do the testing. And so skin biopsy sometimes can even take more than six months. Um, but there are some targeted tests that come back much quicker. Um, there are some targeted tests like looking at specific mitochondrial DNA variants and looking at the percentage that variant is present in a particular tissue that take six to eight weeks, assuming things like DNA extraction come back um, clean and they don't need repeat samples and there's no issues with insurance. But primarily six months is a good estimate for the majority of tests that we, we order. Okay, one last question as we're getting close to one. Um, one patient was wondering if you've ever, if you ever would consider doing muscle biopsies on people, especially specifically teens that have a bleeding disorder. And obviously that would, you know, be um, something that depends probably on the bleeding disorder that they've had and, you know, that particular patient. But just generally speaking, like, have you ever done a muscle biopsy with someone with a bleeding disorder? Or is that something that creates cause yeah, sure. for pause? So, I mean, there are times where people, right, it's going to be weighing the risks and benefits, right? Can we identify this person's diagnosis any other way besides doing surgery? Um, and, you know, there are times where people with bleeding disorders need surgery and the hematologist is going to be a key player in making sure that, you know, we're able to do the procedure. Um, it depends on what the um, bleeding disorder is. So, for example, there's a disorder called von Willebrand's disease, and usually you can um, help prevent bleeding during a procedure using DDAVP, right? So there's a medication that you can take before surgery. If somebody has, let's say it's really necessary or somebody is... Um, getting a another procedure, you know, this happens not, uh, you know, too uncommonly, we'll put it off, we'll say the risk is too much. But let's say somebody needs hip surgery, or even a GI procedure, sometimes we'll say, look, you're already going for that procedure, they're already going to need to give you clotting factors, or whatever else is needed, go ahead and combine the muscle biopsy onto that other procedure. So we like to do that when we're when we're a little bit on the fence about whether someone needs a muscle biopsy, or it's complicated, and maybe a little risky. Um, another time that comes up is not only with bleeding disorders, but is it safe for somebody to be fasted, right? Some of our patients have really profound hypoglycemia, or they don't tolerate anesthesia well. And so there are other things that we try to do um, to you know, minimize those side effects, like combining procedures and making sure the team is aware, IV fluids need to be run, you know, that kind of thing. I will say that... Um, you know, there, there are a few centers that do needle biopsies. Um, we, we have been doing needle biopsies. We might do them again, but we will not do a needle biopsy on a patient with a bleeding disorder because it's too hard to control in an outpatient setting. That's something where you want to be in an operating room with a surgeon, a trained surgeon who can control the bleeding just in case that, you know, there is any type of um, complication. Um, but I wouldn't say I would, I would rule it out completely. It can be discussed between the hematologist and the surgeon. Thank you so much.
Thank you guys both so much. Uh, we we are at one o'clock and it went, went by super fast. Um, so we, we appreciate you both, Dr. Goldstein and Jamie, for taking the time to join us and give us some insight into navigating um, and, and to getting into see CHOP. Truly, we're so grateful for the team at CHOP and your tireless efforts to support the Mito community. You truly have set the gold standard of care for our community. And we're really grateful that you're... Um, I mean, you tireless. I don't know how else to describe your your commitment. You really go above and beyond, and um, you know, treat the whole patient. I'm sorry, um, and we really we we're truly grateful to you for that. So, um, we thank you, Stephanie. Any closing remarks before we we head out? I just want to just say how much how much we love you guys and how humble you both very like our, um, you know, they sent me their bios and they were like two sentences long. And that just honestly speaks volume to who you guys are and how much your purpose is just to care for your patients. And so, um, so thank you. Thank you for all that you do. Truly grateful. Well, thank for you. you. Thank yeah, you very much so for well. all those kind words. Um, you know, we're, we're here for a reason. This is what we do. This is what we love to do. And we're grateful for everybody who tuned in. And we hope that we provided you with some useful information today. Thank, well, we'll we hope to hope see you soon. <laughs> <laughs> with, with requests, but we, we truly appreciate you guys. And thank you for your time today. So thank you to You're everyone that joined us today. We appreciate you taking the time to trust Mito Action to, to go on this journey with you. Have a wonderful weekend. And we look forward to staying in touch. Until next time. Thank you.